are listening to the Classic Sermons Podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. You will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival sermons from great preachers of the past. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. The old evangelist went to town, started meetings, would stay a month, six weeks, two months, three months, and had revivals. I read they had such a revival in Wales that when the revival was over, they had to re-educate the mule. The miners who had driven the mules had cursed the mules so much that when the miners got converted and quit their cursing, the mules didn't know where to get up or gee ha They had to re-educate the mules when the revival closed. I read about that. I said, Lord, I'd like to have a little of that. I'd like to taste that. When I was a little boy, there's an evangelist in Atlanta, Georgia, who held a revival in Athens, Georgia, had 2,500 conversions in Athens. And a friend of mine told me years later that he drove into Athens during that revival meeting, and he said, you could not go anywhere without hearing people pray or read their Bible. You walk into a place of business, somebody had his Bible open, leading somebody else to Christ. You got on one of the trolley cars or street cars, and he said you'd hear people singing. And unashamedly, they were telling others about Christ on the street corners. 2,500 conversions. And I thought, I'd like to enjoy a little of that. Dr. Ice has a book. It's out of print now, I think. But it's entitled, We Can Have Revival Now. The lectures were given on the campus of this university many years ago. What is revival? Well, revival is not an accident. I mean by that that I believe that some of us think that revival is like a shower of rain, in a sense. We have no control over it whatsoever. We do nothing to produce it. And that the shower just may come or it may not come. In Middle Tennessee, we, we haven't had any rain to amount to anything in three months. We had no control except to pray. But since I've been here, I've received a report. We've received two inches of rain in the Nashville, Middle Tennessee area. And so for years, I thought revival's like that. Just maybe I might be in the right place at the right time, and the revival cloud may hover over my locality, and the revival showers may fall on me. But revival's not an accident. May I say revival's not an explosion. I mean by that, that folks get together on their knees, and they pray, and they pray, and they... And they think if we pray all night in the church that suddenly the lightning will flash and the thunder will roll and everybody will jump up and shout and run out in revival zone. Revival is not an explosion, it's a combustion. A little fire begins to burn. And the fire spreads and it spreads and finally it spreads further. It takes in a church and then maybe it takes in two churches and then a community. We may never have another revival, I mean a great revival, but I, I'm, I'm convinced that, that it is possible. My philosophy is learn from those who are doing it. If you want to learn how to raise corn, ask a guy who's got corn in his barn. 
If you want to learn how to build a church, ask a fellow who built a church, who has seven or 8,000 members and baptized converts every Sunday. If you want to have revival, then you should ask somebody who's had revival, who knows what revival is. Revival is a result of the proper use of constituted means. But even the proper use of constituted means does not result in revival without God's blessings on our efforts. R. A. Torrey, a contemporary of D. L. Moody, a great evangelist called by some the apostle of certainty, had great revivals, and one day he gave this prescription for revival. I share it with you. And I titled my message R. A. Torrey's Prescription for Revival. Listen very carefully. Tory said, I can give a prescription that will bring a revival to any town or any church or any community on earth. Here it is. First, let a few people that need not be many get thoroughly right with God themselves. This is a prime essential. If this is not done, the rest I'm going to say will come to nothing. Now listen to it. Second, let them bind themselves together in prayer groups to pray for revival until God opens the heavens and comes down. Third, let them put themselves at God's disposal for him to use as he sees fit in winning others to Christ. That is all. I have given this prescription around the world. It has been taken by many churches and many communities. In no instance has it ever failed, and it cannot fail, end of quote, oratory. Did you hear his language? Three things he said do, and then he said, I have given this prescription around the world. So geographical location has nothing to do with it. I've given this prescription around the world. It has been taken by many churches and many communities. In no instance has it ever failed, and it cannot fail. Now, if I was a pastor of a church and I was serious about having revival in my church, I would study what Tory said. Based on that last statement, it has never failed and it cannot fail. Now, let's go back and look at what he said. First, let a few Christians, they need not be many, get thoroughly right with God themselves. Now, stop. Notice he said, let a few Christians, and then he emphasized it by saying they need not be many. So revival does not necessarily start with a large crowd. It may result in a large crowd, but you do not have to have a large crowd to have a revival. Let a few Christians... That means you can have revival in your church of 30 and 40 and 50 and 100. That means you can go back to your town of 6,000 and have revival in your village and have revival with two or 300 people. Let a few Christians, that need not be many, get thoroughly right with God themselves. Then he said, this is the prime essential. If this is not done, the rest I'm going to say will come to nothing. Unless you're willing to do this, you can forget binding together in prayer groups. Unless you're willing to do this, you can forget soul winning. 
You can forget putting yourselves at God's disposal for him to use as he sees fitting winning others to Christ. Now, I don't want to repeat it too much, but I want you to get it. That a few Christians, there need not be many, get thoroughly right with God themselves. I stop to ask. Are you thoroughly right with God yourself? I'm not talking about your neighbor or your wife or your children. I'm talking about, what about you? What about me? When is the last time that you were thoroughly right with God, that you knew there was nothing in your life that was not confessed, forgiven, cleansed, blotted out, and forgot about? I'm afraid many of us Christians reason, well, everybody has their sin. And this happens to be mine. I'm afraid we reason that nobody's perfect, and so I shouldn't even try. Everybody's going to mess up, so this will be the area in which I'll mess up. But every Christian should strive to live as close to God as he can possibly live. Harry Ironside said, if you were ever closer to God than you are now, then you are backslidden. Remember the day you were saved. Think about it for a second or so. Remember how you felt, the love you had in your heart for everybody. Remember how you wanted everybody else to be saved. Remember how you'd weep when you'd read your Bible. Remember how you felt when you go to church and hear a sermon preached and the invitation given and people respond to get saved and how you'd weep as they walk down the aisle. Remember how you felt when you'd pray as if God were sitting in a chair next to you. And now the Bible's a dead book and prayers are dead and you go to sleep while you're praying. And now when people get saved in church, you begin to look at your watch and, and really hate the fact they got saved because it's going to mean a few more minutes for them to introduce those who got saved. No real rejoicing over sinners coming to Christ. Now, there, there are more than the outward visible sins in the life. I'm afraid many fundamentalists do not need sermons on drinking and cussing. I never have cussed in my life. I, I've seen a few times I wanted to cuss. If you wrote cuss words on a piece of paper, I'd have signed it and handed it to a fellow. But I, I never really lost my temper and cuss. Never been drunk in my life. Tried to live moral and clean and pure all my life. I'm afraid we fundamentalists are, are, are not troubled with what we call the outward visible sins of the life. In, in Luke chapter 15, I, I, I maintain there are two sons that are backslidden. The prodigal son who went away from home was backslidden because of the outward obvious sins in the life. He wasted his substance on riotous living. But the older brother who stayed at home was just as backslidden as he was. The only difference was his was the inward secret sins of the heart that nobody saw. Let's look at that older brother and those inward secret sins of the heart that are just as wicked and vile and sinful as the outward sins of the flesh. Now remember, the younger fellow who left was his brother. He indicated absolutely no concern and no compassion. You never find that older brother saying to his father, Father, I miss my brother. Father, I want my brother to come home. Let's have a prayer meeting and pray that my brother will come home. I'm burdened about him. My heart breaks for him. I love him. I miss him. I long for his fellowship. I want him back. Not one time did he show any concern over the brother that was away from the father. In Christian circles nowadays, when somebody falls, 
If somebody happens to mess up in their Christian life, rather than people coming to me and say, what should we do? How can we help? Aren't you burdened over this fellow? Can't we have a prayer meeting? Can't we restore this sinning brother and get him back into fellowship with God? The attitude seems to be, I'm glad he's gone. The attitude seems to be, now I have, can have more of the father's affection because he doesn't be bothered this fellow anymore. He's out of the picture now. When I read Luke chapter 15, I almost get the impression the older brother was glad that the younger brother was gone, didn't want him back. Show you another thing about that older brother. When the prodigal started back home, he said, How much bread is there in my father's house and despair? There's enough bread at home for everybody to eat and some despair. Here's the older brother at home. He never said to his dad, Dad, we have more bread than we can eat. He never said, Dad, what shall we do with all this spare bread we do not need? Uh, why don't we share this with somebody who needs it? He, you, you, you get the picture, he's hoggish. He's a closed-fisted, tight-wad, penny-pension, selfish individual. With a philosophy, make all you can, can all you make, set on the can and poison the rest. Don't give anybody anything. No concern about the brother away from home, not one time praying for the brother's return. Selfish, never wanted to share all the bread at home, though they had some despair. He never wanted to share it. And number three, when his brother finally did come home, he wouldn't even fellowship with him. He stayed outside the house and pouted while the father killed the fatted calf. The music was made. They began to sing and dance and make merry because he said, This my son was lost in his fountain. He was dead. He's alive again. He's, he's glad to have him back. But the older brother sat outside and he pouted and he pouted and he pouted. Let me call your attention to something. He never even referred to that younger brother as his brother. If you remember the language of the Scripture, he said, All these years have I served thee. Neither have I transgressed thy commandment at any time. He affirmed both the negative and positive aspects of his service. All these years have I served thee positively. I have never transgressed your commandment at any time negatively. And yet he said, you never kill the fatted calf for me that I may rejoice with my friends. You really wonder if he had any friends. And then he went on to say, but as soon as this thy son was returned, you killed the fatted calf for him. Now, why would he say, as soon as this thy son, don't, doesn't he know that if it's the father's son and he's the father's son, that it's also his brother? But he never recognized him as his brother. Now, here was an older brother at home that tried to get right with the father and stay wrong with the brother who just got right with the father. I hope you understand what I'm saying, but it's an impossibility for two men to be thoroughly right with God and wrong with each other. When a man goes to tune a piano, he takes what they call a tuning fork. Looks like a pulley bone out of a bionic chicken. And he'll sound that tuning fork and tune the piano that tuning fork. If there is another instrument to tune, he'll tune it with a tuning fork. He will not tune it with the other piano. He'll not hit a note on this piano and tune that piano with this one, and then tune another piano with that one, because after four or five pianos, they'll be out of tune with the fork and out of tune with each other. But he can take 10,000 pianos and tune them all with that fork. 
And when they're all in perfect harmony with the fork, they're in perfect harmony with each other. You see, if we major on getting right with God rather than right with each other, we find out we're right with each other when we all get right with God. If I'm in tune with a heavenly tuning fork and the other guy's in tune with a heavenly tuning fork, we're in tune with each other. But if I'm not in tune with the other guy, one of us are out of tune with the tuning fork. It could be that both of us are out of tune, but one of us are dead sure out of tune and we'd be tuned with each other. Let a few Christians, there need not be many, get thoroughly right with God themselves. What about those inward secret sins like jealousy? I pastored a church for 20-something years. Down the road me was a little church, I won't call the name of it, but they were being blessed of God. And one of the deacons of that church was a, was a painter. He painted houses. He was on my mail route. That's why I quit the mail route. And every Monday as I'd head around my mail route, I'd, I'd cut down the side street to see Homer. Homer was a deacon. I'd always ask Homer, well, Homer, how was the service yesterday over the church? And invariably, Homer would start shouting and slinging paint all over the house. Oh, hallelujah. He said it was a great day. We had 300 Sunday school and 17 saved and two joined the church by letter. And we've got to build a new church if this keeps up in the next few months. I will make an honest confession to you. I wasn't happy about that at all. I was a good hypocrite. I smiled and said, that's great, Homer. Wonderful. I'll get back in my mail truck and run over somebody's dog I so mad. I could rejoice with that guy. And I'm going to tell you what. I went to ask Homer every Monday, how was it yesterday? Not because I wanted a good report, but I wanted a bad report. I was hoping someday he'd say, nobody showed up yesterday. I think I'd have shot the rest of the day. Hallelujah. Praise God. Well, you say, I never felt like that. Well, pray for me. There's that inward jealousy. If God blesses the other fellow, then there has to be something wrong with his ministry. If he gets too many saved, and I'm not getting many saved, there has to be something wrong with his converts. He got a thousand saved, and I only got two saved, but mine really, genuinely, Holy Ghost, heaven sent, sky blue religion, they got it sure enough. When we started winning souls to Christ in Atlanta and building a church, I found that preachers became critical. And preachers began to question the sincerity of my converts. Nobody ever questioned my converts when I had three a year. It's when we started getting 50 and 60 a week. And I really got so discouraged with preachers, I was getting ready to quit the ministry. B.R. Lakin came to town. I said to Dr. Lakin, I said, even preachers cuss you. Even preachers can't rejoice when you have a good meeting, have a lot of folks say, they can't be happy with you. And, and they criticize you and question your converts. And B.R. Lakin said, don't worry about it, son. As long as they kick you in the rear, you know you still got the lead. And I said, whoopee, let them kick, let them kick. If you don't want to be criticized, do nothing, say nothing, and be nothing, and nobody will say anything about you. 
Nobody ever criticizes the dead. Don't care how mean he was, after he's dead, suddenly they quit criticizing. They go by and say he's a good whistler, wasn't he? He's a good hunter, had a good dog. Nobody cusses a dead man. If you're not getting your cussing, it's a good sign you're dead over where you are. That jealousy on the inside. And in trying to explain away the other guy's success. I've heard preachers say, well, I can't have a crowd because I'm such a good, powerful, strong preacher. They can't take my preaching. What a pious fool you are. Did it ever occur to you the other guy might be giving them more than you're giving them? You go down to feed the hogs and rattle the bucket like you've got slop in the bucket and leave without putting anything in the trough. They'll show up a few times. But you go down with an empty bucket 10 or 15 times and rattle a bucket, they'll just look at you. Stay down there in the mud hole. They've been in an empty trough too many times. And I'm afraid too many of us go to the pulpit with an empty bucket just to clang, clang, clang and say nothing and teach nothing and convey nothing and the people leave dead and dry and empty and hungry. And then we go by and say, we're such great preachers, we run them all off. I'm afraid that's not the problem. The problem is they're tired of that castle of milk toast and shucks. And that sermon outline you borrowed from a fellow 18 years ago, you don't know what it means, but you memorized and alliterated it and it sounds good. We become echoes to the voices. We don't even know the truth we try to convey. We just read it, memorize it, and tell what we saw in the book. Don't even know what it means when we tell it. We need to know our message and know it well and deliver it so we can understand it. Jealousy on the inside about the other guy. Never can rejoice with that fellow. You know, I went for months like that, and I said, Lord, I can't go on like this. And I decided, I'm going to cure this by praying for that preacher. Now, I had what I call will and feelings. When I pray, I like to pray with will and feelings. But I don't have any control over feelings. I do have control over will. I can will to do the right thing whether I feel like doing it or not. Somebody said, should I tithe if I, if I begrudge it? I said, absolutely. That way you only commit one sin, the sin of begrudging. You don't tithe, you commit two sins, the sin of stealing and the sin of begrudging. Somebody said, give till it hurts. I said, oh no, give till it feels good. If it hurts the tithe, give 20%. If it hurts, give 30%. If it still hurts, give 40%. If it keeps hurting, give 50%, 60%. You'll start getting the feeling good on purpose after a while. I made myself get on my knees and pray, and I said, Dear Lord, I don't want to pray for this man. Really, I'd like to see the guy fail. The church closed up. I know eight families that joined mine. Two of them's tithes over a hundred dollars a week. I really don't want to. I really don't want to see the guy blessed. But I, I know I should pray for him. And I said, I'm not praying because I want to pray. I'm praying because I ought to pray. And I'd say to Will, let's go pray. Will said, I don't want to pray. I said, you have no say so over it. I got control of you, Will. You're going to pray. 
Then I'd say to Thedens, me and Will's going to pray. Would you go with us? Thedens said, "Uh uh-uh, ain't going. I said, please go, Thedens. It's no fun to pray without you. You're the one who makes praying fun. Please go with us. Thedens said, "Uh uh-uh, I ain't going. I said, oh, Thedens, come on, please go pray. I'm not going. I said, I'm going to pray. I said, Will, let's go. I said, Thedens, go with us. We want to pray. I ain't going. I said, man, Will's going to pray. You're sitting here by yourself. When the bathroom got on my knees, began to pray, me and Will. Five minutes, ten minutes, fifteen minutes. After a while, I felt something nudging up against me. I said, boy, that feels good. <laughs> Who is that? That's feelings. He said, I got lonesome out there. I want to join you and Will. And me and Will and feelings had an old-fashioned Nazarene Pentecostal Baptist slobbering jubilee in that bathroom. Do right because you ought to do right when you will to do right and feelings will get in line with you and will if you keep doing it long enough. Learn to rejoice with the other guy. There's that inward jealousy. There's that envy. And then there's that business of trying to tear the other guy down, you know. If you can't tree the coon, don't cuss the dog that can. If you can't tree the coon, don't shoot the best coon dog in town because he makes you look bad. Nobody ever built his house by tearing the other guy's house down. And nobody ever built his ministry by tearing the other guy's ministry down. You'll learn if you help your brother that when you get your brother's boat across, lo, thine own boat hath reached the shore. You can't help the other guy across with his boat without getting across to yours. But we don't have time to help nobody. I know about revival. Of course, they let a few Christians, they need not be many, get thoroughly right with God themselves. This is a prime essential. If this is not done, the rest I'm going to say will come to naught. D.L. Moody opened a revival and said on this first night, I want everybody here who knows any sin in your life to come and kneel and confess your sins to Christ, pain, forgiveness, and cleansing. And one man said to Moody, Mr. Moody, I cannot remember my sins. Moody said, well, kneel down here and guess at them. And Moody said he guessed them the very first time. And I got an idea that if the preachers in this building really wanted to get thoroughly right with God, you could guess your sins the very first time when you opened your mouth. The attitude you have about that preacher across town, or the attitude about that guy in the church didn't do you like you think you ought to treat a gent, and you just can't get over that. Man, if we'd get thoroughly right with God, we'd find ourselves thoroughly right with each other. The emphasis is not on getting right with each other. The emphasis is on getting right with God. Martin Luther said, keep short accounts with God. He meant don't let sin pile up in your life. Harold Seitler told a story. If I remember it, he said a young girl and her, and her younger brother was standing together at a service station. Early one Sunday morning, he stopped. The boy was rather dirty. And Harold Sattler, making conversation, said to the boy, How did you get so dirty so early in the morning? And his little sister answered and said, Mister, he didn't get that dirty this morning. He went to bed like that last night. And I'm afraid that most of us didn't get like we are this morning. We went to bed like that last night. 
We've committed this sin and that sin and the other sin, attitude down in the heart, maybe some outward visible sin too. And we just, we just figure, well, it'll take care of itself. It won't take care of itself. If you put a muddy spot on this wall, time will not clean the wall. Some action has to be taken. First John 1, 9, by the way, the whole epistle of First John is written to believers, all five chapters, 105 verses. Verse 13 of chapter 5 says, These things write we unto you that believe. It's written to believers. It's not written to unsaved men telling how to get saved. It's written to believers telling how to maintain fellowship with Christ. And in verse 9, John said, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. If we believers confess our sins, not to each other, I don't, con- I don't confess my sins to people. Because I'm afraid the guy I confess unto may backslide. And he'll sure have an excellent memory. And he'll delight in telling everybody in town what you told him. But I do believe in confessing my sins to Christ. Leveling. Lord, here it is. I didn't read the Bible like I should. I hadn't been winning souls like I should. I have not been tithing. I'm a God-robbing thief. That's what I am. Name it. Be honest with God about your sin. Confess it. And if we confess it, he is faithful. You know what that means? That doesn't mean what you think it does. A man who's faithful to his wife 364 days a year is not faithful. Faithful means every time. That means you'll never go to God and confess the sin that he won't forgive. He's faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. When you confess the sin to Christ... The moment you confess it honestly and sincerely, you are forgiven and cleansed. It's one thing to be forgiven. It's altogether another thing to be cleansed. The little girl is told by her mother not to get near the mud, so she gets near the mud anyway and falls in and gets muddy. Her mother calls her inside and says, Did I tell you not to get near the mud? Yes, ma'am. Did you do it? Yes, ma'am. Then I'm going to spank you. And he, the girl begins to cry and say, Oh, Mother, please, I didn't mean to fall in the mud. I didn't get as close as, I, as you think I did. The dog jumped up and hit me in the back and knocked me toward the mud, and I fell in accidentally. They don't have a dog, but that's what she said. Please, Mother, she said, Forgive me. Oh, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. I'll never do it again. If you'll forgive me, I'll never do it again. And Mother says, All right, you are forgiven. But her mother does more than forgive her. Your mother takes off the muddy clothes, puts her in the tub, gives her another bath, washes her hair, blow dries it, puts clean socks, clean shoes on her, ribbon in her hair, and fixes her back like she was before she fell in the mud hole. So when she gets to church, nobody will ever know she fell in the mud hole. Her mother forgave her and, and cleansed her. When I confess the sin to Christ as a believer, he forgives me and cleanses me, but he also blots it out and forgets it. We must learn to forgive ourselves. Isaiah 43, 25, the Bible said, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own name's sake and will not remember thy sins. If I died and went to heaven and said, God, I'm sorry for that certain sin I committed, he'd say, Curtis, I don't know what you're talking about. You say, is he absent-minded? Nobody has a divine forgetter. 
That's something your wife doesn't have. Something your neighbors doesn't have. God not only blots it out and cleanses it, God forgets it. I had an experience some time ago that illustrates this. My wife had been begging for a microwave oven. And I didn't want a microwave oven. You can't cook black-eyed peas and fried okra and cornbread and boiled potatoes in a microwave oven. And I, I had an idea that folks who eat food cooked in a microwave oven would die with cancer. There's got to be wrong with something to get anything that hot so quick. And I said, honey, I don't want a microwave. People eat food out of those things going to die with cancer. She said, you eat in restaurants more than you eat at home. I said, that's true. She said, most of that's cooked in microwave. I said, shut up. <laughs> but she begged for a microwave till I gave her a microwave for Christmas. I was always careful to watch what had been cooked. And I learned those dumb things are good for one thing. They're good to heat your coffee. Used to, I, I'm not sanctified yet, I still drink coffee. They asked, they asked Uncle Bud Robinson, how can a sanctified man drink coffee? He said, just a minute and I'll show you. And, you know, I don't drink that much coffee. I hold a cup in my hand and sip on it. I always drink down about an inch or two and then dump the other out and pour another fresh cup in and sip an inch or two out. And by that time it's cold, I dump that out. And so one day I was about to dump a cup of coffee out. I said, don't dump that out. I'll heat it up for you. And I thought, you're going to put it in a pot and boil it? She said, I'll just stick it in the microwave. I said, in less than a minute she had that cup back to me. It was hot. I never seen coffee so hot. You could fry a pigeon in that cup. It was sizzling. I mean, it stayed hot for the longest kind of time. After that, she'd heat my coffee. My coffee got cold. I was in the kitchen. And I thought I'd heat my own coffee, so I just hollered, how do you work this thing? Isn't it funny how wives know what you're talking about without you telling them? There's a lot of things in the kitchen. But she knew which thing I was talking about. Weird, frightening, really. She said, mash that silver bar down at the bottom. The door opened. So I pushed the little bar and the door jumped open. She said, set the cup in the middle of the oven. I said, and she said, close the door. I closed the door. She said, now mash where it says time set in the corner. So I did that. She said, put in the time you want. I said, how much? She said, 25 seconds. Well, I'm a thorough sort of an individual. If they say take two pills, I take three. If they say twist it four times, I twist it five. I want to make sure it's right. So she said 25 seconds, and I thought 40 seconds. But I hit the four, and I hit too many zeros, and I had 400-somethings in there. And I didn't want to tell her that I had messed up because she really enjoys me messing up. And I was going to deprive her of that joy if I could. But she knew when I didn't ask any more questions, something was wrong. So very proudly she said, what's wrong? I said, 
I didn't answer. Something's wrong. I could hear a giggling. I said, I think I'm going to burn the house down. I either got 400 minutes in this oven or four hours. I don't know what I got in there. She said, well, listen to me, do what I tell you. I don't like that. But I had no choice. I was hung up. She said, look down at the bottom as the little button says clear. She said, just mash. I said, what happened? She said, don't worry about what happens. Just, just push it. I said, what will happen? She said, just mash the button. I said, she said, what happened? I said, it's all gone. She said, now start over and do it right. And as I started over, I said, that's, that's a good lesson. First John 1, 9 is a Christian's clear button. If you mess up, don't cover it up. Just admit you messed up and mash the clear button. But I'm afraid we've made mess after mess after mess after mess in our life. We haven't been mashing the clear button often enough. And we've allowed sin to pile up in our lives. We need an old-fashioned prayer meeting that lasts a long, long time till each of us could confess every sin to Christ and get thoroughly right with God ourselves. When that happened, revival's on. May I hasten to give you the last two points tonight in preaching. Second, Corey said, let them bind themselves in groups, prayer groups, to pray for revival. And here's the key word, until God opens the heavens and comes down. Not pray for revival, pray for revival until. And I want to emphasize that, until. Until. Don't just pray two times and quit. Pray until. I'm afraid many of us have come that close to a gusher answer to prayer and just quit praying. You should get Dr. Rice's book on prayer and read the 14th chapter entitled Praying Through, where he gives a lesson on praying with importunity. Dr. Rice said, if you pray for something and keep on asking for it and keep on asking for it and keep on asking for it and keep on asking for it, one of two things will happen. God will either give you what you're asking for or change your prayer. Then he gave Paul as an example. Paul besought the Lord thrice that he had removed the thorn out of his flesh. He never changed your prayer. He said, Lord, remove the thorn. I can preach better. Because Paul knew if you kept on asking, you'd receive. He asked the second time and the third time. And the Lord saw Paul was not going to quit till he got his answer. So God said, my grace is sufficient for thee. And my strength is made perfect in thy weakness. And then Paul said, in essence, Lord, I, if you don't mind, I'll change my prayer. He never prayed the fourth time for God to remove the thorn, but he began to pray like this. Most gladly, therefore, will I glory in mine infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I'm afraid our prayers are little rituals. We're not serious about it. One guy, Dr. Rice, called on him to pray in a meeting, and the guy quoted a hundred Bible verses. When he finished, Dr. Rice went to him and said, I notice you quote a lot of Bible verses when you pray. He said, yeah, Dr. Rice, I always quote a lot of Bible verses. And Dr. Rice said, I noticed that you gave the Scripture reference, so God could look it up and find it in his Bible, too. And the embarrassed preacher said, I gave the Scripture references for the people. And Dr. Rice said, that's what's wrong with your prayer. You wasn't talking to God at all. You was talking to the people. I wonder how many insincere have prayed out of pulpit Sunday after Sunday and Sunday night after Sunday night and week after week. No real serious prayer. Talking to the people. 
Like the little girl praying at Christmas, Lord, give me a doll. And she was praying real loud, Lord, give me a dollhouse and a tea set and a new doll. And my mother said, quit yelling. God's not hard of hearing. She said, I know it, but grandmother is. Let them pray until God opens the heavens and comes down. Number three, of course, they let them put themselves at God's disposal for him to use as he sees fit in winning others to Christ. That is all. I have given this prescription around the world. It has been taken by many churches and many communities. In no instance has it ever failed, and it cannot fail. Now let's go to the book of Acts. And I'll give him a text and close the sermon. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 14. And watch it very carefully. These all continued with one, what's the next word? That does not mean they were all riding a Honda automobile. The word accord means to be in harmony or tune with each other. These all continued in harmony, tuned up with each other. Now, how did they all suddenly reach a place where they were in one accord, in perfect harmony with each other? Remember what I told you earlier? Because it all got right with God. Because each instrument had been tuned with a tuning fork, and thus each instrument was tuned up with the other instrument. Funny. The more you believe the right thing, the other guy believes the right thing, you'll find yourself walking down the same road together. Without an official joining up, you just sort of gravitate to the kind of people who believe like you do. You even saw in a revival, you show up at the sword conference. You read the Bible, you show up at a fundamental place. You're a modernist, you don't show up there. How many was right with each other? They were all in one accord. They were all tuned up with each other because each one had gotten thoroughly right with God. Now watch the rest of that same verse. These all continued with one accord. So they did the first thing Tori said. They got thoroughly right with God. The second thing Tori said was let them pray until God opens the heavens and comes down. Now watch the rest of the verse. These all continued with one accord in what? Prayer. Now underline that word continued. These all continued in prayer. What did Tori say? Let them pray until. They didn't just pray and stop. They kept on praying. They continued in prayer. They continued in prayer. Or we go back to our churches and get on our knees and say, Lord, we're going to keep praying and keep praying and keep praying that you do something or change our mind. We're going to keep ringing your doorbell. You open your door and pour something out on us. We're not going to give up. We're going to have it or else. So they did the first two things, Tori said. They got thoroughly right with God. Thus, they were all in one accord. Number two, they continued in prayer. The third thing Tori said was let them put themselves at God's disposal. For him to use as he sees fit in wanting others to Christ, that is all. Let's see if they did that. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 4. And they were, what's the next word? All. How many? All. How many continued in prayer? How many was in accord with each other? All. Now look at verse 4. These all, they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. Now watch the rest of it. And began to what? Speak. That's the big thing. What language they were speaking in is not the big thing. The big thing is speaking. They were not jabbering. I mentioned that last night. They were speaking in languages of the people present on Pentecost. 
Now, we think that on Pentecost that Peter got up and preached a great, marvelous sermon and gave the invitation. Three thousand got saved as a result of Peter's sermon. But you look over the fact that all the people there were speaking. They were all witnessing. I'm dead sure one was saying to this one in his language, and that one, another one that fell in his language, here's how you get saved. Here's the plan of salvation. Here's how you trust Christ. Here's what it means to be saved. So when Peter preached and gave the invitation, since they had all been speaking, they had 3,000 people saved. I preached in a church where David Bowler's here. I preached in his church. We had over 3,000 in Sunday school. I think had over 300 saved or something like that. One service. You think they had 300 saved because I came down and preached a big sermon? No. They had 300 saved because David Bowler's church membership had been out for several weeks, all of them speaking all over town, inviting lost people to the service. And when I got there, I just reaped the harvest that they brought in for me. So what did they do on Pentecost? They did what Torah said. Number one, they got thoroughly right with God, thus they were in one accord. Number two, they continued in prayer, like Torah said, until God opens the heavens and comes down. Number three, they put themselves at God's disposal for him to use as he sees fitting when he goes to Christ. And they were all witnessing. And the result was a mighty revival with 3,000 converts. You've never seen a revival like that. You've never been in a revival like that. They not only had 3,000 conversions, they had 3,000 baptisms. Acts 2.41 said, They that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added on them about 3,000 souls. Wouldn't you like to be in that? Well, it says 1988, yeah. But I hold in my hand the same Bible Moody had. The same Bible Tory had at his disposal. I hold in my hand the same Bible Spurgeon had. The Bible has not changed. I serve the same God Tory saved Spurgeon served. And Moody sir, God has not changed. Malachi 3, 6 says, I'm the Lord thy God, I change not. And James said, all good and perfect gifts come down from the Father above, in whom there is no variableness, never varies, neither shadow of turning. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. God Almighty the same tonight. He always has been. The Bible is the same. It always has been. Holy Spirit's the same. He always has been. Plan of salvation, same. It always has been. God's love for sinners the same it always has been. God's invitation for sinners to get saved, same it always has been. Nothing on God's side of the windows of heaven have changed. Any changes have been on this side of the windows. I'm convinced that we can have revival in our churches. And if I know anything from my travels, the greatest need in fundamental churches... Right now is revival. The opposite of love is not hate, but indifference. And indifference is a dry rod of the church. It's killing us. It's not the Bob Inger Sauls and the infidels and the agnostics and the drunks and the dope addicts that's hurting us. It's dead, dry, cold Christians who can take it or leave it. And the sad thing is I give you this prescription and close my sermon and close this conference. Well aware that when I close and you leave, that some of you have no intention of anything about it. And some of you don't even believe what I said. 
You're like the lady who said, I didn't have potatoes, so I substituted rice. I didn't have paprika, so I used another spice. I didn't have tomato sauce, I used tomato paste. Not a half a can, a whole can, I don't believe in waste. A friend gave me a recipe. She said, you couldn't beat it. There must be something wrong with me, I couldn't even eat it. The reason why she didn't do a thing, her friend said, that if you'll take this simple prescription, which is a biblical prescription that I've shown you from Acts 1.4 and Acts 1.14 and Acts 2.4, you can have revival. If I was a pastor and wanted to get my church moving again, want revival, I'd set out to do these three things. I'd lead my people to all get thoroughly right with God. I'd preach on sin. And invite sinners to come get right with God until everybody was so in tune with God they were tuned with each other. Then I'd start praying and I'd, and I'd get them busy winning souls and revivals on. Tori said, I've given this prescription around the world. It has been taken by many churches in many communities. In no instance has it ever failed. And it cannot fail. Thank you for listening to the Classic Sermons Podcast from PreachTheBible.org a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. To listen to many more powerful sermons, visit our website, preachthebible.org. If you enjoy Christian music and programming, visit knvbc.com for Christian music you can trust.